straight out of the ICU is right. This episode is with a dear childhood friend and critical care physician who's going to talk to us about what she experienced in New York during the height of the pandemic. I'll be back in just a moment. This is Nero Feliciano, and welcome to the All Things Life podcast. I'm a wife, a mom of four, and a cognitive psychotherapist. And I'm really excited to share these conversations and interviews with you that will hopefully help you live a healthier, fuller, and more peaceful life. Well, hello, everyone. You might be wondering why I'm doing this episode now. And there's so many reasons. One, I really felt that healthcare workers, frontline workers needed to share their stories so that we understand the situations that they've been in, that they've worked in, the type of people that they are. When these stories hit us personally, it it kind of moves us to think about what can we do? And because we're still in this time of COVID, we, there are still things that we can do to mitigate the spread of this disease. And I'm hopeful that by hearing the stories, there'll be more incentive to do those things. And also hearing it from the doctors, the ones who know the science behind it. Today, I'm interviewing my dear childhood friend, Dr. Mirna, who's a pulmonary and critical care specialist and works at a hospital, which I will not name right now, in Manhattan that was at the center of the pandemic just a few months ago. So she has some pretty amazing stories. And if you want a picture of how people came together during this pandemic in healthcare, this is a great episode to listen to. While she spent long days and nights in the ICU, days, weeks on end, she also took a little bit of time to chronicle her journey on Instagram. She has a private account and I watched her move through it. And some of the stories I just, you know, it just kind of broke my heart. And at the same time, I was so inspired by what these doctors did. And she's going to share some of them today to just give you a picture of what life looked like and some advice as we go forward. So this is my conversation with Dr. Mirna. Well, Mirna, thank you so much for giving me time to talk to you on the podcast. It's nine o'clock at night, and I know you've had like a a busy day, but that's kind of normal for you. Uh, It is, um, but thank you for having me. Um, I feel like nine o'clock is usually around the first time of the day when I can do anything but my normal work and normal home life. So, so this is this is a this is a normal time for me to be uh, doing an extra activity. Well, I appreciate you spending it with me. So you have been in the thick of it for the last several months, actually in the ICU. So I want to talk about some of your experiences that you've had during COVID. But what are you seeing now? Things have dramatically calmed. You know, the the months of end of March, April, May, um, those were incredibly terrible times. Um, and uh, But into June and, and now the month of July, um, things have definitely calmed. We are seeing normal ICU numbers uh, for the summertime. Um, and, you know, a normal census is, you know, anywhere from 12 to 14 patients in our, in our medical ICUs. Mm. Um, 
And, you know, I just completed an ICU week um, last week and I went a whole seven days as the, you know, lead ICU physician and we didn't have any new COVID patients come into the ICU that week. That's not to say that COVID patients aren't being admitted to the hospital at our hospital and other places and they certainly do come to the ICUs. But the fact that we could go for seven days without a new admission to the ICU, um, it just felt so shocking. Mm. Um and, and such a relief, you know, to see um, that the patients really had non-COVID critical illness. That must have been surreal coming out of what you were looking at during COVID. Yeah. So, I mean, this has definitely been a, a slow and bizarre transition back to what we would call a new normal, um, I guess, uh, similar mm-hmm. to what we're calling a new normal in, in, in the world. You know, um, it's, it's always hard for me to describe to somebody who wasn't in the hospital, what it was like to be in the hospital during um, the peak of the COVID pandemic. You know, being in the epicenter in New York, it was just like something I had never, ever seen before. And I'm an ICU doctor. We are trained to deal with emergency upon emergency, um, you know, to be able to keep our cool and, and to go from one urgent procedure to another crashing patient to somebody who needs an airway. And this was that times a hundred. Mm. It was really shocking in the beginning and and frightening, I think, for everybody because there was such a mix of unknowns. Mm-hmm. Um, I think we as physicians are we're so dependent on science. We're so dependent on medical literature. We we love guidelines. We love evidence based medicine, and we were treating in the dark. Um, you know, even though we had read very avidly and had followed all the all the reports and the science that came out of Europe and Asia, it, it really just felt like a new challenge and a, and a completely unknown terror, to be quite honest. The other side of it, of course, is that we were all afraid for ourselves. Sure. Um, you know, we'd leave the hospital in the morning and be afraid and not know what you were going to get into that day. We still don't know. And then we really didn't know how COVID was definitely transmitted. And there was a lot of fear about being appropriately geared up, having the appropriate equipment, um, making sure that we were hand washing appropriately, that we were hand washing frequently enough. And you kind of have this just like cloud of worry and fear hanging over you on top of seeing numbers of patients in the ICU that I have never seen before. Um, mm. You know, we we basically think I think at the peak in our hospital, um, we were seven times over our normal ICU census, which was incredibly overwhelming. Um, And that brought a whole other facet of challenge to us. You know, there's only so much physical space in an ICU and there's only so many physical ICU doctors to take care of these patients. Mm So along with the unknown about the disease itself, along with the worries about our own health, the health of our loved ones, the health of our colleagues, and and really the dramatic impact that this illness had and how quickly it was it was causing people to be critically ill and causing people to die. We also were dealing with the rapid change in infrastructure that we had to develop in the hospital to go from a regular medical ICU that would take care of anywhere from 12 to 18 patients, let's say, to multiple ICUs all over the hospital taking care of 70 plus ICU patients, most of whom were on ventilators, and also having non-medical ICU 
physicians take care of these patients. So our surgery colleagues who do critical care were coming in, our neurosurgery mm, colleagues, mm-hmm. our cardiac colleagues, um, everybody was coming in and and really stepping up to do more critical care. Um, and it, it was really just uh, it was just an incredible roller coaster in in every way possible, and just a massive shift and reorganization of everyone's roles, right? And I'm sure some of those lines were blurred as you were reorganizing. Absolutely. Yeah. So, you know, we, we normally, you know, again, we're critical care doctors. We like order, you know, (laughs) we like things to be on a paper, on a schedule. We know what time we come to work. We know that the day can be unpredictable, but you're, you know, you're eventually going to go home at a certain time. And, you know, after seven days in an ICU rotation, you get a break. Um, You get to go to an easier rotation or perhaps shift to some academic work. And here, those kind of normalcy of work hours just kind of went out the window. Mm. Um, I was getting to work two hours early than I, earlier than I normally would, and I was getting home from work two, three, four hours later than I normally would for weeks on end. Mm. And, you know, it got to the point where a normal work week, you know, seven days in a row, um, dealing with the intensity of this illness, the horrific amount of debt that we were seeing in the hospital, um, you know, that's just simply wasn't physically, emotionally, or mentally manageable um, for such long stretches of time. So we rapidly went to what we call surge scheduling, which are is basically a way to give people high bursts of work time and then reasonable bursts of downtime. Um, mm-hmm. So you have some time to be home and recover and rest a little bit. I think some of the challenges of that, and I felt this, and and I know many of my colleagues and my fellows who are training to be critical care physicians, even being home during that rest time, there was really no rest. Mm. Um, you know, no one was sleeping, and mm-hmm. and I don't think this is just physicians. I, I think that this was everybody mm-hmm. in the world, really. I mean, what a bizarre thing, but but to have people unified by just anxiety and fear mm-hmm. and waking up at two, three in the morning and being up for hours, wondering what the next day's news would bring about COVID and deaths and rates of infection. Um, but it certainly affected was, you far, far oh, differently, right? Having to walk into it every day. I, I, I mean, I think so. I, you know, I, I think everybody... Face, faces, I think, face their own battles with COVID, whether they're healthcare workers or not. Sure. Um, mm-hmm. But I, um, you know, it was, it was, it was one of the most difficult things I've ever faced in my life. Mm. Um, and I think uh, being home, even on those times when we weren't supposed to be in the hospital, you know, the the common analogy was to war, and mm-hmm. maybe that's wrong to say, because none of us have actually been in battle. None of us have been in war. Um, But that's really what it felt like. You know, we were battling this unknown enemy um, that just kept taking life after life. We didn't have enough knowledge or science to be able to fight back and certainly not medications that, that we know would work. And when you were home, it was this kind of constant anxious feeling of like, oh, how could I leave my colleagues out there on the quote unquote battlefield? You know, um, mm-hmm. how can I be sitting at home when when they're there exposing themselves, you know, having to deal with all the physical, mental and emotional burden of, 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 this, uh, of this role? It's like another form of survivor's guilt. Just taking a break guilt. Yeah, I I think, you know, I think that's a great way to put it. Wow. And tell me, because we're seeing this, of course, in mental health everywhere, Mm -hmm. just the constant Mm 
limbic system simulation where we're at in fight or flight mode <laughs> all the time or freeze mm-hmm. and, and the impact that that's having just in terms of physical exhaustion, but also emotional and mental exhaustion. How did you deal with your own fear during this time? You know, there wasn't a lot of time for those two months, um, especially um, there, there was not time during the day to, you know, unpack the emotional trauma that I think healthcare workers were experiencing. You know, I, I joke a lot or I joked a lot about this with my colleagues, but, but really the only time we had was maybe if we were able to sit down for a quick meal and you would kind of just chat with colleagues, but I think what we all just talked about during that time was how we just couldn't believe that what was happening around us was happening. Mm. We were still in a state of shock and disbelief um, and just, you know, wondering wondering and worrying what was going to come next. Mm -hmm. Um, So I don't think we ever were really removed from the situation during those two months. And when we were, you're just so exhausted. There was no time to sit there and, and have a good talk with yourself and kind of examine your thoughts and feelings and, and you know, try to practice good mental hygiene and mental health hygiene and things like that. Um, so I think there wasn't tons of time. We had a lot of resources that were rapidly upscaled and made available to healthcare workers. But even if I'd wanted to, I, I just didn't feel like I had the time to, to sit there and, and, you know, access those resources. So for me personally, I think where I did my best was, you know, one was relying on my my personal resources. Um, and, you know, I, I would never wish this pand- pandemic on anybody, but but I would say that there's a couple of positive side effects that came of it. And, mm-hmm. and one was, you know, being in better touch again, you know, through Zoom or texts or something like that with with groups of friends from other parts of my life who I don't necessarily work with at this time. Uh, Probably one of the biggest supports for me was a text thread that I had with my friends from residency, many Mm. of whom are also in pulmonary and critical care, Mm -hmm. um, and my friends from fellowship who who are all in pulmonary and critical care. And, you know, that was an incredible support to me. Um, They all saw what was happening in the news, and it was just this constant check-in and this sharing of information across those threads. Um, checking on each other's health, checking on each other's well-being. Um, and, you know, everybody was interested to know how we were tackling things in New York um, because it was coming to them soon. And it was right. really um, just, just you know, it was a really a really good lifeline to have those, those groups. And I think the other natural lifeline for me, and I'm just incredibly lucky that I got to come home to a family every day. Um, mm-hmm. My daughter is three and a half and <laughs> she was asleep most of the time when I came home during those weeks. Um, And my husband uh, was also exhausted. Um, You know, he bizarrely, you know, this is the first time our career paths and our career topics have coincided. And he works in global health and was working on global health COVID topics. But, um, you know, I was lucky enough to come home and and have somebody there who would ask how I was feeling, would ask how I was doing. 90% of the time I was like, I cannot talk about this right now. So, uh, you know, so, but it, but it was really just a comfort for me uh, to have somebody there to, who was insurance that the rest of our life was, you know, staying on track or making sure our daughter was fed and entertained and wasn't too afraid by all the major changes that were happening around her. So I think that that was just incredibly, you know, I, I'm grateful and, and very lucky to have that support. 
then the last thing is, of course, the rest of my family, um, you know, I have uh, two sisters, you know, one who's a medical physician, um, one who's a professor, and my parents, you know, uh, my father's also a physician. Um, and, you know, between them, I think it was, um, you know, there wasn't a lot of time to, to call and talk about it. And when there was, um, it was really just people who wanted to listen to me, um, mm. which I felt was really really, you know, um, a great space to have. Um, and if, and when I wanted to talk about it, I had the opportunity to do so. Um, but I felt like I was also given a wide berth, um, to just have my own space and maybe for the first time in my adult life, you know, my parents were calling my sisters more than they called me. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So, um, and I think that that was, that was their way, I think of giving me the space and the time to deal with, um, everything that was going on processing it and and giving yeah. you that space to process because it can be re-traumatizing to keep talking about mm-hmm. it, especially when you've gone through such trauma. Mm-hmm. I definitely learned a lot about your job and about you and about some of the cases through Instagram when you were posting. Yeah. And a couple of things I definitely want to ask you about that. So you you told quite a few stories of different patients that were really moving to you. Do you remember any of those stories that you feel comfortable sharing? Sure. Yeah. Um, so I'll uh, I'll just you know put the caveat that I I um, you know it was a private it's a private Instagram account and yes. and you know I appreciate that you appreciated them. I've gotten a lot of you know, messages and and inquiries about making it public and Mm -hmm. please put these in a magazine. And I'm like, A, I can't draw. (laughs) Um, (laughs) And B, you know, even though I worked really, really hard and ensured that every little vignette was de-identified and there was no privacy information, um, I still feel like they're, they're, kind of private stories. Um, And so I, I, you know, I really kept them as, as kind of anonymous as, as they needed to be. Um, But there was, um, yeah, there's, there's, uh, gosh, I remember so many experiences from that time. Um, I think, um, probably a funny one, which I know sounds weird, um, but because it had a happy ending, um, I had taken care of a, a very young woman, um, who was in our ICU and, um, you know, she was a healthy young woman. She was in her 30s, didn't really have any medical problems, but she was obese. Um, and it's one of the risk factors that we've seen come out of this pandemic. Mm-hmm. Um, and she was very lucky, um, you know, even though she had a severe form of the illness, she was critically ill, had to be in the ICU. Um, she never needed to be on a breathing machine. And so um, she was really doing well when I finished one of my stints in the ICU and, and it looked like she was going to be discharged from the ICU. And, you know, just fast forward, I was doing a different type of critical care. We also do critical care on a regular medicine ward. um, And that's where we get called when there's an emergency or somebody might need to go to the ICU. And uh, I got called to a room of a patient who had COVID. Um, The patient wasn't doing well and we assessed them and gave them the treatments they needed in the moment and, and made plans to bring them to the ICU. And in the heat of the moment, I had kind of rushed past the first patient in the bed, the patient in the first bed to the one who was having the emergency. Um, mm-hmm. So on my way out, I, I kind of paused and through the corner of my eye, I saw that it was actually that young woman. Um, mm-hmm. She was the one sitting in the first bed and she was sitting up and she wasn't wearing any oxygen and she was eating a sandwich. Mm-hmm. And I just, you know, we had just seen so many horrible outcomes and 
I mean, really, I, I just, I just can't put into words the number of patients who, who were dying from this illness. Um, and seeing her, I, I think some just crazy switch turned on in my head because it was just such a joyous moment for mm. me that a young woman had made it through this and was going to be alive and go home to her family and and go back to a life. And so I kind of lost it. Um, mm. And uh, I just was so excited that I just went overboard talking to her and she remembered me. And I said, I just was like, this is amazing. Look at you. You're alive. You can breathe. You don't have oxygen. You're going to have a life. You have to go and make the best incredible life for yourself. Go out there. You can be anything that you want to be. Uh-huh. And, uh, and you know, my fellow who was with me, he was like, are, are you okay? <laughs> like really was just effusive city. Mm. And this wonderful, wonderful young patient looked at me and she was just like, yeah, can, can I finish my lunch? (laughs) So it was really, um, that was probably one of the more heartwarming moments. Mm. And I hold on to that one because there, there wasn't a lot of laughter, you know, there wasn't a lot of good, happy stories, um, especially out of the ICU patients. Um, I think we, we saw a really skewed view, um, because there was, hundreds of patients who came into the hospital with COVID and went home without a problem. Um, Mm -hmm. But the ones that we were seeing, of course, were were much sicker. Mm. So on the other end of the spectrum, I think there were certainly much harder stories. And you know, I think this this particular one, and I remember this woman really clearly, um, her story isn't unique because one of the worst things about this illness is the restrictions we had to put on visitors. Um, And People were alone. People were alone a lot in the hospital. And that was a combination from not having family members and friends be able to visit them. It was a combination from being on incredibly strict isolation in the hospital so that doctors and nurses had to collate their time um, and be in the room for longer periods of time, but kind of all at once. Um, And when they didn't need to be in there checking the monitors or giving treatments, you were alone. Mm. Some people were sedated because they would be on a machine, uh, a breathing machine, and we had to keep them comfortable. But some people were awake um, and and had to just be there alone with their thoughts and their difficult breathing and and their worries about their mortality. So I think it was just an incredibly challenging time for everybody. I think one habit that I developed quickly and uh, with my team and and this is you know probably one of the first patients that we lost. You know we were at her bedside and you know she was a patient who did not want advanced life treatments. Um, she was older in her in her mid eighties um, and had lived a life and she would not want a breathing tube and she was dying and we were at her bedside for that moment. Um, and we declared her, but we stayed with her, uh, for significantly longer than we would, um, had this been a separate situation, you know, had her Mm. family or her loved ones been there. And, you know, I just kind of decided in that moment, and we took this forward for every patient who passed that we had to be their, her family Mm. in that time. You know, we had to be the ones to acknowledge and, and remember that she had lived a life and to thank her for everything that she brought to the world um, and, and to just wish her peace. Um, and, you know, after she had left us, 
It was really moving. Um, I felt like it was this teeny bit of solace for us. Even mm. That sounds so selfish and that, you know, the moment of somebody else's death that we were finding some solace. But I felt like it was finally something that I could definitively do for a patient with COVID. Mm. Um, you know, really at that time, we, we really didn't know, even though we had lots of treatments and lots of ideas and, and many different trials that were ongoing, but one thing I know is is that we can bring comfort to patients, whatever illness they have and whatever thing whatever thing that they're dying of. And I found that that was something that we all really grasped onto that we could definitively bring her comfort at the end of her life by by being with her. Mm, gosh, I I can't even imagine. And that is so it's so beautiful and so heartbreaking at the same time. Yeah. But it makes sense because as as physicians, especially with what you're doing, you're used to helping people. You're used to healing them. You're used to kind of giving them life, you know, so to speak, and and to be able to then step into that role where you're ushering them out in, in a beautiful way, stepping in as their family. I don't think people recognize just the weight that this has placed on all of you emotionally and the way that you've all risen. I mean, we've seen it. We've thanked essential workers, but the extent of the stories we will never know, you know, from the outside, we won't know. Mm -hmm. So that's why I, re I thought it was really important after seeing some of your stories that you, you tell us because just the ways that you all have found to connect with patients, even during this time mm -hmm. has been amazing to me, those stories, the one like that you just told and it's, it is going above and beyond what you're called to do, but especially through your own trauma, through your own grief, to be able to do that and, and have it be the type of experience that, that is healing on both sides. Um, that's a beautiful story. Oh, thank you for saying that. Um, and, you know, I think you hit on an important point that it's, it's healing for many different people. Um, and I think for healthcare workers, whenever we do feel comfortable or find the outlet, it, it is healing to talk about it. It's healing to tell these stories and, and to remember and to recognize and, and kind of honor that experience for what it was, the, the good and the bad of it. I think that's a lot of why I would do those drawings or these little vignette cartoons. Um, it was kind of, it was my outlet of the day. I didn't have the energy to sit there and talk about it. But I, I felt like I had the opportunity and the energy to, to pour it into these little pictures. Um, and, and that really helped me. I think also what we worked really hard on is because we couldn't often talk to the patients. Mm -hmm. We could we could talk to their families. Mm -hmm. um, you know, it was on the phone um, most of the time. Um, after a few weeks of the pandemic, um, resources, you know, were, were mobilized and we were able to do a lot more video conferencing. We had iPads in every room and iPads all over the hospital. So family members could actually look at their family member. Um, we basically could FaceTime them from inside the room so that they could see their family member and their loved one. And mm. we could talk to them at the bedside. We could talk to them outside the bedside. And and we did some crazy things. I mean, nobody was let in the hospital. And sometimes the family member just needed to see our faces, you know, mm. needed to understand that we were human. So I had a whole bunch of medical discussions on the sidewalk outside of the hospital because there was just nowhere else to meet anybody, mm. you know, and it was this bizarre outdoor socially distanced sidewalk family discussion um but you know it was it was important for us to to be able to do those tangible things and and to bring some sort of 
comfort and, and peace and solace, you know, to, to people's loved ones. Um, it's just such a, a traumatic time for everybody to, to not be physically near their loved ones. That must have been so hard just to see the interaction on the iPad between mm-hmm. the patient and their families. Mm-hmm. You know, I can't imagine witnessing those conversations. It was heartbreaking at times. Um, it was surreal at times. Um, you know, critical illness is it's a really, it's not the easiest thing to grasp. You know, um, I think that a, a lot of lay people understand a whole host of medical conditions. You know, if somebody has a heart attack, that's something you kind of have a reference point for. If somebody has pneumonia, um, if somebody has a seizure, um, but critical illness is a whole other level. Um, so even in previous normal times when family members members were physically here in the hospital, able to touch their loved ones, talk to them and and have long conversations with us in person. Even then it's, it's one of the greatest challenges of my role is to be able to clearly explain, you know, the physical processes that are happening in critical illness and, and kind of usher the family members and the patients through, through our treatment plans and what to expect. On the iPad, you know, while it's 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 wonderful that they could see their loved one, you know, it's it's still a two D interface. It's you know, it's not perfectly clear. Um, the angle might not be just right. You can only have it at a certain angulation, um, and it's really you know, you really lose the impact of touch, mm. the impact of real sound. Um, you know, all of those other sensory experiences that you have inside an ICU. There's smells and sounds and beeps and you know, all sorts of other assaults on the senses. But all of that brings with it the whole picture of what the patient is going through. So it was it was difficult, I think. Um, it felt artificial to talk to them through an iPad, but I think it allowed them to bear witness to what their family members were experiencing. Mm. Um, and, you know, and, and sometimes it allowed us to just sit with them um, without having to talk and without having to find words and, and just to demonstrate to them and let them know that we were there. You know, mm-hmm. we were the ones that were there in their place. Um, and, and I don't mean just physicians. I, I really have to herald our nurses. They were really the yes. ones mm. that were in the rooms more than anybody else mm-hmm. constantly in and out of the patient's rooms, really holding the patient's hands, really helping them, uh, you know, through every, every second of their illness. And we had so many other mobilized services that, you know, went above and beyond, you know, in addition to all of the other doctors who stepped up to do physical roles and, and physician roles that may not be their, their normal specialty, but our palliative care docs, um, you know, we had an amazing system at my hospital where within a week or two, uh, we had a 24-7 palliative care service that was staffed by some, some of the greatest experts in the country. And they were additionally calling and speaking to family members, helping them understand on top of the regular medical team. And then, of course, we had our our local care staff and some of our experts who work in social work, um, our experts in other um, sort of social case management work, um, and particularly our chaplains. Mm. You know, everybody was restricted. um, And if you didn't have to be at the bedside, you know, you weren't allowed there. But we had chaplains who were walking around the ICU and praying outside of the rooms 
and praying in ways that were really individualized to the patients mm-hmm. and leaving leaving notes on the door explaining to other people in the ICU, you know, what would be meaningful for this patient, mm-hmm. um, whether it would be to, you know, say a prayer from the Torah um, or a different type of blessing. Um, and, and I think that brought a lot of meaning and, and individuality to the patients, you know, when they couldn't speak for themselves. So amazing. That's so amazing. Those are the stories we don't hear, you know, from the outside. That's true. I, part of the reason why I wanted to do this episode now was because COVID is still a thing. And Mm -hmm. there's so many people who don't treat it as such, especially now where we are with our numbers down. But there are states going through some of what you've been through, Mm -hmm. you know, as we speak. So I wanted people to hear kind of the reality of what what it has been and what it is and what it potentially could be again. And also to understand the role that healthcare workers have been in from a more personal perspective. And and I when I thought about you, just knowing some of your sacrifices, there was one thing that you had on Instagram. By the way, your cartoons are brilliant. They are so <laughs> you say so much in such a little picture. Um, I don't know if there is a way to do it, I think definitely share because <laughs> you, you sound like my husband. He's like, you've got to publish these. I'm like, I can't draw. <laughs> you you don't have to. Yeah. You just, you yeah. say so much in those cartoons oh, that you did about you. your days. But there was one story that you told, and I don't remember exactly how you told it, but it was kind of the protocol that you created for your family <laughs> when you came home from work because you have yeah. this little baby, you know, this little girl. Mm-hmm. Um, so t- can you tell us about that? Sure. You know, this is where another facet that was so uncertain um, because we didn't really know how it was transmitted, um, whether it was through contact with the virus, like physical contact with the virus, whether it was through breathing small droplets or whether it was inhaling micro droplets. Um, you know, we really didn't know. And, you know, I was we were incredibly lucky in my health system, you know, and I know many, many hospitals were not this lucky, but I I was never without PPE. Um, You know, we certainly were reusing shields for our faces and, and being very cautious about use of gowns and gloves, um, very different than our normal practices. Um, But I was lucky. I I still, I felt like I always had the appropriate protective gear. That being said, um, you know, we were still really, really, worried um, about what I might be bringing home. Um, and this is where those text threads with with a lot of my physician girlfriends, um, who some of whom are moms as well, um, you know, we would all be kind of chatting about, well, what's your, what's your protocol? What do you do when you get home? And, you know, some people have garages and they were stripping down in their garages and, and some people were taking showers at work and then leaving the hospital and leaving all their work stuff at work. But in New York City, you know, there's not a lot of options. Um, and, you know, we are lucky lucky to have space. Um, you know, we're lucky to have two bedrooms here, but it's still an apartment. There's no place to leave your stuff. Mm. So, you know, I kind of would get home at whatever hour. And, you know, for, for many weeks, my daughter was already asleep when I got home. So it wasn't so challenging. But as my hours became a little bit lighter, um, you and I would, I would be able to make it back while she was still awake. And, and that was just really difficult. You know, she's, she's an incredibly bright little girl, but she's three and a half. And it was really tough to walk in the door and have her come running towards me and want to give me a hug and 
that was just like our normal thing. And for me to kind of step back and tell her no. And, you know, the first several days, the automatic thing was, of course, she would burst into tears. She Mm. hadn't seen me in days and days and days sometimes. And, you know, she was incredibly emotional, like anybody would be, um, add to that a toddler emotions. And, uh, you know, that was just heartbreaking for all of us. But, you know, she learned fast and, Basically, I mean, our ritual was, you know, I would leave my COVID clogs outside the front door. I would walk right into the apartment. My husband and my daughter would be kind of corralled in the living room. Mm -hmm. Um, And we luckily have our own washer and dryer. It's a luxury for a New York City apartment. And I would basically just strip down, put everything COVID in the wash. I had like a little COVID bag that was zipped and put in a corner that nobody was allowed to touch. And I would race upstairs and, and just have a hot shower, you know, and, and just try to wash the day away and, and wash whatever I could away, you know, whatever virus might've been on me. And she didn't know you were coming home at that point. You kind of made it so she didn't know. No, I mean, she knew. She Got knew. Used and to I it. think, yeah, she got used yeah. to it initially. Um, and then um, we kind of figured out that we, we had to do something different because it was just it was just too traumatic for everybody, you know, <laughs> like finally coming home and she's crying, I'm crying, you know, mm-hmm. no, it was a really, really sad, sad kind of experience. Um, so so we actually we decided we were going to try to gamify it for her. Um, and, um, you know, when I would come home, instead of us hugging, um, we decided that our new family thing when I got home was we were all going to do a really silly, stupid dance. And we'd put on some silly music and we would do a 10 second countdown and scream at the top of our lungs and, and do a dance together. And, mm. and it became like our new greeting. Mm-hmm. Um, and it very quickly replaced, you know, her need for that immediate hug. And, you know, she got used to it. Um, so now, I mean, we're, we're in July and, you know, even though COVID has calmed, I still see patients who have COVID and COVID is still around the hospital. So I still do that ritual. But, uh, but she knows now, you know, and I'll walk in the door and, and she kind of cheekily will say, well, can I touch you now? <laughs> and, uh, and I'm like, what do you think? And mm-hmm. she's like, no. And no. So I'll go up, have my shower. And, and as soon as I'm done, she'll, she'll ask again, can I touch you now? And, uh, you know, and then we'll, we'll have our hug and our, our little cuddle. Um, she's so um, precious. And I, I love um, that you made it into a game for her. And, uh, you know, why that story just moved me, because I know a little bit of your journey just to have her, I mean, you have, you did not have an easy journey when it came to fertility. Mm-hmm. So this, this child is so special. And now having teenagers in my house, um, or teenager, I know that that time where they run to you when you come home is just, it's such a short window. So, mm-hmm. you know, just thinking about it from that perspective, I, I just thought, you know, the sacrifices that these people are making, they're just even beyond what, what we know, but they're a part of your daily life. Sacrifice on every level just seems like it was a part of your daily life. Yeah, no, I, it's, I, I appreciate you phrasing it that way. It's, it's funny. I don't think that, I don't think that many of us who were in the, in the thick of it and, and in New York City really thought about it that way. You know, it never really crossed my mind, you know, that I, I wouldn't go to work and, and it's not because I'm special or unique or some hero. Um, but this is, 
this is the challenge that we've been training for, um, you know, and I would much rather that we hadn't experienced it. I would have loved to have gone through my career without having known what COVID was. But when it came upon us, myself, all of my colleagues, and that's everybody at every level in the hospital, from physician to environmental staff, food service, you know, nurses, you name it, every single essential worker in that hospital, I just followed the call. So I, I, I understand that word of sacrifice. Sacrifice, mm-hmm. um, but it didn't feel like a choice, and I feel like, in a way, sacrifice—I don't know—maybe sacrifice implies some choice to me. Um, but we knew what we had to do, and I think we did it, knowing the risks, but just doing our absolute level best to to control the risks as much as possible and and protect the ones that we were coming home to. Mm. Yeah, I mean, it was it was terrifying, you know. I mean, and you know, you mentioned like our struggle to to have our daughter um and she, you know, and I'm not really one to usually use these terms, but I think the term is rainbow 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 child, yes. you know, a mm-hmm. child that has been born after struggles and and miscarriages and and other fetal losses and and we had them all. Um, mm-hmm. You know, it took us five years and a lot of privileged dollars um, mm-hmm. to have her. And you know, she was she was our last try. Um, and somehow she came into the world. But I even then, um, you know, um, I was terrified. God, if anything had happened to her, or she had fallen ill, or one of us had fallen ill, or both of us had fallen ill. I mean, I worried about it every night. This mm. is the things that would keep me up at night. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, I'm still her role model. Mm-hmm. And I wanted her to know, and I know she will know this as she grows up, that that we did something important. Um, mm. Even when we were really afraid, even when we didn't know what we were doing, even when it was really sad and desperately scary to go to work, it was more important that we still went and that we still did that job and we still took care of people who couldn't couldn't take care of themselves at that time. Well, this is why people call you heroes. I mean, all of these <laughs> responses are exactly why that's what I kept telling you throughout this on Instagram yeah. that you're my hero because because you really are. Um, I just have two other quick questions for you, sure. Myrna. You know, from what we know now with COVID, are they treating patients differently that come in with COVID? Is the treatment different than what it started out to be? It It is, but um, we are still searching for evidence-based, you know, treatment approaches to COVID. When patients first came in, um, you know, we were really lacking in clinical trials um, and, you know, in, in medicine, we rely on science. Everybody mm-hmm. should rely on science. If you take one thing away from this discussion mm-hmm. is please, please, please listen to the scientists. Um, there is a methodology and a way for us to slowly and tediously understand disease processes and how they respond to treatments. And we have some answers now, and we know that some of the treatments that we reached for in the beginning don't work and potentially could be even harmful to patients. We are still learning if there is a targeted treatment for this virus, um, and I think time will tell. Um, but science, unfortunately, takes time uh, and patience, and, and I think it's important that we're patient and, and listen to to what we learn from from really robust clinical trials. Mm. What are you anticipating seeing over the next few months? Oh, that's the question of the day, isn't mm. it? You know, I 
I mentioned earlier that things had really come down, but one thing that hasn't come down is is that feeling of walking on eggshells and wondering if tomorrow is going to be the day. Mm. You know, it's it's felt by everybody. Um, I mean, we are are well past our peak. You know, we're, we're like I mentioned, almost pretty much at normal numbers in the hospital. But still, every day, you know, the questions that we ask each other is is how are you doing? Is your family okay? what do you think is going to happen? Mm. When is the next peak going to happen? You know, what have you read recently? What can you share recently? So because it happens so, so fast. It happens so fast. Um, so I don't know. And I, you know, I'd be lying if I said that I could predict it. I'm fearful for the fall and for the winter, which is not just a time when we might have another peak, but when we could have, um, you know, when we usually have uh, influenza peaks, Mm -hmm. the combination of influenza plus coronavirus or the novel coronavirus, that makes me really worried. And uh, especially if it's going to be in the same patient, but I think, I think we have to wait and see, you know, and, and just be careful in the meantime and do what we know works, which is being distant from each other, wearing our masks and washing our hands constantly. Um, mm. Those are the, the three things that we really know um, is, you know, sort of the best means that we have to prevent transmission and contagion with this illness. What would you say to people who are relaxing about this, who are not taking it <laughs> all that seriously? Because we're seeing that all over with the numbers being lower here as well. Sure. Yeah. No, listen, I've, 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 I live in Harlem and, you know, New York and, you know, I've walked down the street and seen, you know, parties of hundreds of people in the park not wearing masks, you know, and I think it's, it's, it's incredibly terrifying to see that. So what I would say is, is it's not gone. And, you know, in, in the drop of a hat, it can recur and resurge and be as bad or worse than it was the last time. You know, even though there's less of it in New York right now, it's still a virus that kills. It's still killing people every single day, people who have no business dying today. Mm. Um, and we have to remember that, um, you know, it can affect any one of us. Mm. I think coming from you, that is a really important statement because many of us say it, but you've lived through it. You've seen it. You know the science. So I just want to thank you for taking the time to talk to us about your story and your journey. And I'll say it again. You are by far one of my my top heroes, <laughs> especially seeing everything that you've gone through and just your your heart in all of it is so beautiful. So it's, I'm so proud to know you. I'm so proud to know you. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me and and giving me a space to speak. And, you know, as I mentioned, telling the stories and speaking about it, it's a small bit of healing. So, so you're doing a service to me as well. I appreciate that. I was listening to some of her stories and I was just thinking, wow, I mean, I, I can't imagine being in that position and yet they were operating with such sensitivity while on autopilot. So just something to think about as we go into this next season of our life and what we can do. And and this episode was not to incite fear. I mean, some of it sounds really scary. We know there's potential for it again, but rather to encourage us to focus on what we can do so that we're not in that situation again. And like she said, there are things that we can do. We're in a much better position right now than we were at the beginning. We know more so we can do more. And just knowing that we can do more, we can see that we can take care of these people, these people who've put their lives on the line for us in so many ways. 
So I hope that that was helpful to you. Be well, and I'll be back again soon. Thanks for listening today. And if you have a second, go on the Apple Podcast app and rate this podcast. I want to know what you liked and what you didn't like and what you want more of. And connect with me. I'd love to hear from you on any of my social media at Nero Feliciano, the incidental therapist on Facebook and Nero Feliciano on Instagram. And you can also connect with me through my website, Nero Feliciano. So until the next time, have a great day, be well and live full.